Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Medicus. My name is Aaron, and I'm joined here by Raza from the Medicus team. I'm so incredibly excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Eric Burnett. Dr. Burnett is a hospitalist at the New York Presbyterian and Columbia University Irving Medical Center, who has been diligently working throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, both within the hospital and online. Dr. Burnett created his TikTok account in June 2020 and has since garnered over 200,000 followers and close to 6 million likes a viral following that he has used to spread factual medical information regarding the COVID-19 pandemic over this past year. Welcome to Medicus, Dr. Burnett. We are incredibly lucky to have you here today to speak to us about your journey within medicine and on social media. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Happy to be here. So could you give us a little introduction about yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm a hospitalist, so I'm a board-certified internist who works in the hospital. For those of you guys who don't know what, what a hospitalist is, uh, I've been a doctor for about six years. Uh, I did my residency training at Columbia as well, and I um, did med school at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in, uh, in New York and undergrad at Rutgers as well in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And according to your Instagram bio, it sounds like you're a star baker as well. <laughs> Well, star baker in training. That was the way I got through residency uh, to deal with all the stress that comes with being a resident. This was even pre-pandemic, uh, was watching Great British Baking Show and trying to recreate some of their recipes. So that was that was some of my stress relief. Wow, that's fantastic. Do you by chance have any of those uh, photos of your creations online circulating? Yes, yes, they're on my they're on my Instagram. Uh, I haven't done as much baking during the pandemic, surprisingly enough. I guess it was just consumed by TikTok. But if you scroll back a little while, you'll see some of my uh, some of my confections, and maybe it'll inspire me to start baking again. <laughs> I'll definitely have to check that out, as I'm also a, a huge fan and star baker in training. <laughs> So can you briefly tell us about what led you to pursue medicine and internal medicine specifically? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, as far as I could remember, I I was always interested in science and biology. And I I always wanted to find a way to link that interest in science with just humanity, being able to help other people. And obviously medicine in general was was a way to unite those two. And, you know, all throughout school, grade school, high school, I found biology and chemistry super fascinating. So I wanted to my, uh, major in biology with the intent of going into medical school. Obviously, as I'm sure some of your listeners are aware, getting into medical school is pretty tough. Um, so I actually didn't wind up getting in my first go around. So I did a, a master's in biomedical science to sort of bolster my application. And I got into medical school. I went to, like I said, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And, you know, I was I was one of those people that was very open-minded starting. I, I thought that I maybe wanted to do surgery because, you know, watching Grey's Anatomy, it was so glitzy. And I thought, oh yeah, that's cool. That's what a doctor does. They operate all the time. They can like do all these cool things. And then I started third year of med- medical school with OBGYN and I was quickly realizing what I didn't want to do. So I was like, definitely don't want to do OBGYN. <laughs> definitely don't want to do general surgery. Definitely don't want to do peds or neuro or psych. So I was like, well, gosh, I really hope I like internal medicine. Otherwise I'm going to have to figure out another thing to do with my life. Luckily, I absolutely fell in love with internal medicine within like the first moments of being on rounds. I just felt like, you know, with medicine, it's all about trying to pick what you want to do within medicine is, is all about matching personalities. And I felt like when I started 
my internal medicine rotation, I was with my, with my tribe, with my people, super nerdy, super cerebral, always wanted to sort of talk through differential diagnoses, always wanted to really just sit down and figure out what's going on. Very patient centered, not that other aspects of medicine aren't, but I felt like as on internal medicine, we were like the center of the patient's care team. And we were coordinating all the other aspects of their care, whether it be through consultants or social work, physical therapy, diet, you know, the dietitians. So I felt like I was just really part of that person, that patient's experience. And you get to know a little bit about, a little bit about everything, which is what I really loved about it. So that's what led me to applying to internal medicine. Wow. That's really cool. And then you said you're a hospitalist. So Mm -hmm. how did you decide to pursue that path as opposed to like following a different fellowship? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, as I was in residency, I found again that I was, I loved a little bit of everything. I loved certain aspects of cardiology, rheumatology, pulmonology, and I really loved infectious diseases as well. So as I was going through residency, I was planning on applying for an infectious diseases fellowship um, and sort of had everything ready to go at the end of my second year. And then just really couldn't commit because I sat down and I was like, well, what is it about internal medicine that I really like? And again, it was being at the center of the patient's care. And I felt like if I was going to become a consultant, or a subspecialist, I may miss out on that general medicine experience. So I said, you know what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll not apply the cycle. I'll go into hospital medicine for a year or two, see how I like it. And I always have that option to apply again. But when I did hospital medicine, I absolutely fell in love with it. Day one, I feel like, you know, I, I constantly learn. And because I think med- medical education is just such an important aspect of my career as well, it really afforded me the opportunity to work with medical students um, as well as residents and offered me the opportunity to actually serve as the associate program director for the internal medicine residency program at Columbia, which is one of my favorite things to do, just being involved with resident med ed as well as med student ed- medical education. So I feel like hospital medicine afforded me that opportunity, as well as the opportunity to dabble in a little bit of everything um, and learn every single day. So I think that was that saw, that solidified my decision, and I, I, I don't see a fellowship in my future anytime soon. <laughs> awesome! I'm glad you found your calling. <laughs> and and as I said earlier, you started using social media, TikTok specifically, in June of last mm-hmm. year, but. I know from some of your first posts, they weren't necessarily surrounding medicine, medical education, or medical information. So mm-hmm. when did you start to, to decide to utilize social media in a professional or medical manner? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, during the, the peak of the pandemic in New York, obviously everyone was super stressed. It was a very stressing time. Uh, and some of my friends were like, oh, you should just download TikTok because it's a, it's a mindless way of just sort of distracting yourself from the horrors of what we're going through right now. So I was like, Ugh, I don't know if I want to do it. It sounds like it's for kids and I'm, I'm 34 years old. I don't know how well I'll adapt to it. And then I did. And it's very, it's very addictive in terms of you just sort of fall down the TikTok rabbit hole, especially when it starts to get your algorithm and you just start seeing videos that you like. And it was a fun distraction. But then I started to notice more and more misinformation that was just cropping up on, on TikTok. And, you know, I was making like sort of silly videos with my friends just as a way to, you know, preoccupy my, my mind away from the pandemic. Um, but then I was like, wow, there's a lot of misinformation about masks not working, about the pandemic being a hoax, about hydroxychloroquine being a miracle cure. And I was like, this is kind of, you know, unsettling, especially having being, you know, having dealt with it firsthand. Um, so I was like, you know what, let me make a video about mask use. And I did, and that went viral. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't ever anticipate anything that I would ever do to be viral. And I found that there was a lot of people interested in hearing a physician's uh, point of view. So I slowly started introducing my, my medical content 
as I found like more and more conspiracy theories coming up. And then I think the next one I made was like when people started saying the whole only 6% of people are dying with COVID. So the numbers are all overinflated. And I felt like these are really just like obvious misinterpretations of medical data. Maybe if someone who understands the data can interpret it for, for them, they could see that what the other people are saying is false. And that sort of took off from there. Awesome. And medical influencers, physicians such as Violin MD and Mama Dr. Jones have grown in popularity on YouTube. And more recently, influencers such as yourself has, have grown exponentially on, on TikTok. Why do you think medical influencers have gained so much popularity, especially on these social media platforms? Yeah, I think um, I think there's just a general interest in medicine. I mean, there's like tons of medical dramas on television, and they're just like consumed by the masses. They love they love the drama of it. They also love the science of it. And I feel like things on TikTok in particular, they're one minute videos. People can sort of just consume one minute videos really quickly and get this information. And especially as people who do it well can get a lot of information in a one minute video that also makes it entertaining and makes it worthwhile and also allows the, the information to be retained. And I think that in this era of the pandemic, there's just a, a thirst for people who want to know what's going on and want to be able to consume this. And sometimes on television, when you have sort of a talking head doctor just going through the pandemic, it's you know sometimes too much for people to sit and want to watch. Some people just don't want to watch the news in general. So I feel like they turn to social media because it's easier to digest but it's a double-edged sword because the medical information is there, which is easy to digest, but so is the misinformation. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. I think, you know, I have a lot of people from uh, my high school on like my Facebook feed, and I don't know if any of them went to, you know, any sort of um, healthcare field. And so um, some of the stuff that they post, like for them, it appears to be legitimate, come from like a legitimate source. Even remember like one time my mom called me, right? Oh my gosh, this is like the worst when it's your parents <laughs> calling you and are trying to tell you that the virus is a hoax. But yeah, I remember she called me and she was like, yeah, we were just watching this YouTube documentary or whatever. And then they listed all these sources. So it must be true. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, um, you have to evaluate those sources. Um, yeah, so I think you're right. Like. It's nice because I, for one, definitely don't have such a huge attention span for, for things like that, where like, I'm already, you know, having to educate myself so much in terms of medicine, actual medicine, that anything extra just needs to come really fast. But I do think that there's like lots of potential for you to just get the wrong information. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate you using social media for um, education, but how do you think are like, what do you think are some other ways that medical professionals can uh, use social media? I think uh, a huge way we can use to social media is sort of to advocate for our patients as well. I think education is one aspect, but there are a lot of healthcare inequities and discrepancies within, within communities, especially communities of color. And I think especially now with this sort of social justice reckoning, you know, with Black Lives Matter and everything like that, I feel like this is an opportunity for medical professionals to use our platform to advocate for our patients, for the, for the healthcare uh, disparities that have just existed for so long underneath the surface. And I feel like this is a way for us to also just not only our, our BIPOC patients, but our trans patients, LGBTQAI patients who are sort of marginalized at best 
this is an opportunity to use not only to educate people about certain issues surrounding the pandemic, but also healthcare issues. And also, I feel like that's a way to sort of engender trust with these with these patient populations as well. Again, being vocal, being an advocate, letting them know that there are people out there who who want to help, who want to who recognize these disparities that are out there and want to work to change them uh, to the best of our ability. But I think just being vocal about that is also a way to sort of help and use our social media platform for good. So. As medical professionals, there's always a little bit of difficulty in holding those barriers of professional and personal lives, being able to separate work and personal hobbies and personal family. Do you feel like that line kind of gets blurred when you start to move on social media? Are there any topics you personally consider off limits when you're using social media to talk about medical information or to kind of ensure your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the major things, because people see, oh, there's a doctor on TikTok. This is a this is a virtual consult now. I can ask all of my questions. So I, I try to I try to because TikTok will only give you so much information in your character limit in your bio. So I can't put that I, I give out medical advice, but I'll often make a video every now and then and say, hey, you know, I've gotten some new followers. This is just an update. You know, this is this is who I am. This is what I do. This is the purpose of my of my channel but I'm not here to give out medical advice. And I say that anyone giving medical advice on social media should be always looked at uh, with suspicion because as a physician, I would never give anyone blanket medical advice because I don't know your personal medical history. I don't know what medications you're on. I don't know anything about you. So for me to give you just sort of a generic script of this is what you should do for X condition uh, would be uh, in my mind malpractice. So I, I, I would never give anyone any medical advice. It's sort of just generic discussion of data, of the pandemic, of, of ins and outs of COVID um, and reviewing the data for, for the vaccines, for potential treatments that are out there for COVID. And obviously I don't talk about any personal information about patients that I have treated. Uh, I give anecdotes, generic anecdotes about patients, but nothing in particular. And I'll often do sort of like a medical question of the day, which is just based on medical, uh, like the, the internal medicine board exam prep material, that kind of stuff, but nothing, nothing that would breach PHI or, or violate HIPAA. And I think the it's been a longstanding conversation with professionalism and privacy and HIPAA. And I think HIPAA is a really complicated topic that I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people fully understand, especially those that might not be trained in medicine. So I think it's really important for those who might be interested in following your path of using social media to just be aware of how they're utilizing the, that tool in collaboration with their practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So not too long ago, the movie The Social Dilemma came out and it kind of uh, took the public by storm and garnered a lot of attention for exposing some of the downfalls of social media. And, you know, you mentioned some things uh, like, for example, an inadvertently disclosing, you know, protected patient information. But what do you think are some other downsides to using social media as a medical professional? Yeah, I think um, some of the major things you know, once whatever you say on social media is there forever, you know, once it's out there, it's out there and you could try your hardest to sort of get rid of it. So I feel like certain medical professionals do wind up giving healthcare information uh, in terms of recommendations, or they don't necessarily give evidence-based material. They sort of give their own quote unquote expert opinion, which then people will use as medical fact saying, oh, well, this doctor said that zinc is a cure for COVID and they are doctors, so they're right. Um, and I just feel like it's very, it's, it's a double-edged sword because it could, it could be an a, a, a amazing tool to get 
great information out there, but it's also a tool that can get a lot of misinformation out there. And unfortunately, if you carry the weight of a of an MD at the end of your name, a lot of people will will put a lot of stock in what you have to say. And again, it could you you I seen I've seen stories of of physicians and and healthcare professionals talking about patient information that they shouldn't, and it's um and that's that's just such a dangerous thing, especially in this era of of how quickly things can go viral on the internet. You just have to be again, like it's like a sort of a caveat that you have to sort of be very careful. And when I make my my videos on TikTok, I'm very deliberate. And also, what I found as well is a lot of people will sort of tone police you if you sort of if you have like a, you know, you're answering the, the, the same anti-vax talking point for the 15th time in a row saying like, no, it is not going to cause you to be sterile. And people keep pushing that and say, no, you're wrong. It's going to make you sterile. And when I, you know, and I'm tired after a day of work, I may sound a little sharp in my tone. People will say, oh, well, you're being an unprofessional physician. And you, I think there's a, which I've just become uh, accustomed to um, relatively recently is like doxing where people will sort of say, oh, well, you're a horrible doctor because you're mean to people. So I'm gonna take all of your personal information and blast it on, on social media. Uh, so I think that's also another, another downside that you have to be careful of. And again, as people start to grow in popularity on social media, you, you garner this type of attention. So it's something that sort of unfortunately comes with the territory. Yeah, I feel like, you know, even even us as medical students can kind of fall into that trap a little bit. Like you said, like there are some conversations that you just kind of keep having over and over again. And at some point you do get tired of it because people are just not going to get in. And I actually uh, last summer, like had, you know, one of those Facebook wars where it was essentially a person telling me like, oh, and where's, you know, like, where's all this information? Like, and I just basically said, like, I don't owe you an explanation. And then they went after my character and saying that yeah. there's no way that I can be a good doctor and maybe I should reconsider my profession, you know, and all of these things. And at, at some point, you just have to draw some boundaries. But yeah, I definitely can see how people can fall into that trap. Yeah. Um, so as you said, you know, there's sometimes misinformation from maybe not intentionally for medical professionals, but there's also some intentional misinformation. So there have been times during this pandemic, as you've exposed some of these, you know, on your TikTok, where doctors themselves have spread misinformation, like, for example, like the infamous Stella Emanuel touting hydroxychloroquine as a miracle cure, or the ivermectin craze that still seems to be continuing today. Mm-hmm. How do you address these claims when they're coming from your peers, your professional peers? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles um, that I've had to overcome uh, with medical misinformation, because if it's just, you know, some Joe Schmo down the block who found a YouTube video about ivermectin and never knew what ivermectin was before this YouTube video, that's easy to sort of debunk. But again, like I said, when, when someone has an MD or a professional title after their name, it carries weight and people will use sort of argument from authority all the time where they'll say, oh, well, I found a doctor who agrees with me. So therefore everything you say is, is pointless. And people will bring up like Stella Emanuel, the quote unquote frontline doctors, Simone Gold, a couple of other ones. And what I've found is sort of just trying to explain to people that in every profession that you that's out there, there's always going to be a group of, of professionals who are on the fringe of mainstream, who always have a couple of kooky ideas that are just viewed in the profession as a whole as like not good, right? who don't normally follow traditional medical science and consensus. And I went, I made a video actually about sort of scientific literacy tools. And one of them was body of evidence. So you look at all the things that are out there. And if you search hard enough, yes, you're going to find 
articles that say ivermectin is good, hydroxychloroquine is good. But if you look at the overwhelming body of evidence, it, it's contrary to that, right? So you look at different meta-analyses, you look at other papers that are coming out now later on, later on in this pandemic, and there's, there's no good clinical data to support the use of those interventions. So I said, you know, that should raise a red flag if someone who's a physician who is by definition supposed to be an evidence-based practitioner is pushing, is pushing medical misinformation or cherry picking, cherry picking data to suit their narrative, that should always raise a red flag. And I go over those studies and say, yeah, these are the studies that show ivermectin works, but here's why they're not really that great. And here are the other mountain of studies that prove that ivermectin doesn't do anything. And these are randomized clinical control trials as opposed to the observational studies with like four people in them in this other study. Uh, and I just tell people that there's going to be fringe professionals in everything, including medicine, and you just sort of have to take it with a grain of salt. And I said, you don't have to trust what I say either. You can, I give you my sources when I talk about what, what's informing my opinion, feel free to independently review them and talk to other medical professionals and see what they say. Uh, but I always say, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a fringe group of every uh, doctors in every profession. So just, you know, be careful who you listen to. Yeah, for sure. So what has it been like, you know, reflecting back on this past year for you personally to be on the front lines during this pandemic and yet witnessing these ma this massive amount of misinformation, arrogance, frankly, regarding yeah. the virus? Yeah, it's been it's been hard, actually. You know, I never you know, when I trained to be a doctor, you, know, you always think you're going to you're going to you're going to train to do to be able to be to be capable to do whatever you need to do. Um, never in a million years did I think that this was going to happen, that there was going to be a, a like a full-blown pandemic, especially in New York City, where we were the epicenter for months. And, you know, I've had I've had hard days in medicine, but in March, April, and May of last year, I feel like that was the hardest three months in medicine I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was it was very defeating, obviously, dealing with so much sickness and death and just feeling kind of helpless in the beginning because we really didn't have much. To, to treat people with. It was just sort of, you know, just waiting and, and intubating and then just hoping that they get better. And then, you know, dealing with the sort of the, the gravity of that situation and then coming home and going on social media and hearing people say it's a hoax, hearing politicians say it's fake, it's overblown, doctors are just doing it for more money. When healthcare systems were losing billions of dollars, doctors and, and nurses and, and healthcare professionals were being, were being laid off because the hospitals couldn't support them anymore. And it was just, it was just demoralizing. But then I found, you know, by using these TikToks, it was a way to vent a little bit to show my side of the story saying, listen, you know, this person who's sitting in their living room, making these TikToks about masks, who hasn't even seen a COVID patient, let alone treated one versus me, who's literally treated hundreds of COVID patients by this point. And it was a way to sort of express my own emotion. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I think physicians and, and healthcare professionals that are dealing with this pandemic are going to have to do moving forward is just dealing with the collective trauma that this pandemic has been and having to, you know, also deal with the, the, the pandemic of, of obviously COVID and the pandemic of misinformation. So it's fighting this war on two fronts. And, you know, I, I always tell people that, you know, if this, these conspiracy theories were only going to hurt the person making the conspiracy theories, I wouldn't really care because that's a yeah. personal decision. But if, you know, if you're telling people don't get vaccinated, don't wear a mask, take horse ivermectin and you'll be fine, that's harming other people. And as a physician, as a public health, someone who's concerned with public health, that can't, I can't sit on that, right? So that's what like sort of drove me to, to talk and, and, and be outspoken about this. And I think in addition to the pandemic of health and the pandemic of misinformation, there's a pandemic of wellness of our own physicians as well, of our own healthcare staff. Like you said, these past 
year, this past few months have been some of the hardest for a lot of our healthcare professionals. And I think there's a lot of trauma that a lot of our healthcare professionals are going to be having to face in the, in the mm-hmm. next few years. For sure. But with that being said, you mentioned in your, your, your response just earlier that healthcare and the COVID-19 has become very politicized. And I think that's something that gets in the way and obstructs a lot of healthcare because healthcare shouldn't be politicized. It's something that we all hope to provide to all patients, no matter of race, ethnicity, uh, religious background, political affiliation. How has this altered public perception of medicine caused barriers within your own practice as an internal medicine hospitalist? Yeah, I luckily enough because I, I, you know, I am in New York City, which is a very, um, a very blue city in a blue state. I don't have to. I, I don't really encounter all that like political confrontation. Um, I've had a handful of patients who had COVID and didn't believe it, or wound up taking like a lot of vitamin D and came in with like kidney stones because of vitamin D toxicity because they heard on the internet that vitamin D is the cure. But I have talked to other people who have had had this these barriers where people come in or just delayed coming in because they're like, I don't think that I have COVID. They, you know, they, they, or they were diagnosed with COVID and said, no, you're wrong. I have lung cancer. It must be lung cancer. And I remember a physician saying that on the news, listening to them and just, just thinking about this cognitive dissonance, this disconnect that you would rather have a, a malignancy. You would rather have a, 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 a terrible malignancy at that versus uh, uh, versus COVID because you don't think COVID is real. So you have to rationalize another disease to, 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 to sort of explain your symptoms. And in your mind, that disease is cancer. So that that really hit home because I, I hate the fact that this became political at all because it shouldn't have. And unfortunately it did and everything associated with it, the mitigation strategies we employ to prevent the spread of COVID, the, the data that come out about COVID as well as the vaccines have all been politicized and unfortunately, like the cat's out of the bag with that, we cannot put it back in. So we now have to combat this, this huge barrier. And now more than ever, just recently, there's some data out that say, you know, the, the biggest barrier to, you know, herd immunity is going to be vaccine hesitancy, which is in, you know, white evangelical Republicans. So that's a huge cohort that just don't want to get vaccinated, like 50% or more don't want to get the vaccine. And that's going to be a huge hurdle because how do we convince them otherwise? You know, I, you know, we have politicians publicly getting vaccinated or not publicly getting vaccinated, but later telling people they got vaccinated, but still they don't believe it. They said, oh, that they would never get vaccinated. It's a hoax. Again, it's, it's just very easy for them to default to this. Oh, it's a hoax. It's not real. It's fake because it's just easy. It, there, there's no, there's no research. There's nothing they need to support that claim. It's just, it's a hoax. And um, there, there, there's difficulty breaking through to that. Yeah. And I think like, especially now seeing some of the states reopening more and more, even though we're not, you know, over the pandemic by any means yet. I think some decisions by politicians perhaps make some sense, you know, economically, maybe Mm -hmm. opening restaurants, things like that, that impact livelihoods, but things like lifting mask mandates. I mean, really like what is that doing other than, you know, preventing the spread of COVID-19. That's, that's all the masks are for, you know, sure. Like maybe it gets a little hot under your mask and 80 degree weather, but really aside from a little discomfort, there's no reason people shouldn't continue to wear masks. And so I do feel like a lot of this is just kind of like, oh, don't take away my rights. I have the rights to not wear a mask, but, you know, I think it comes back to what you said earlier. It's that it's not just about that person. Cause again, like you said, like, if it was just that person not wearing masks, I wouldn't really care, but it's everyone mm-hmm. that they're impacting, right? 
Um, yeah. yeah. And so, and something that you brought up is this vaccine hesitancy. And that's something that we kind of wanted to ask you about, because I think it's, you know, truly a momentous feat that we have these three vaccines approved for emergency use authorization here in the U.S. and um, maybe more are to come. And um, I think it's really unfortunate with the little tidbit of information coming out about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine with the blood clots, you know, they are investigating that. But I, I think it's so dangerous because when you look at the statistics, right, it is such a such a minuscule percentage mm-hmm. of people that have this chance of getting a blood clot. Whereas, you know, if you get COVID-19, your chances of getting a blood clot slash dying are, you know, exponentially higher. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I just feel like people who are already hesitant will just cling on to this information and just kind of, well, if this vaccine shows this and they were already, you know, out there administering to patients, then why should I trust any of the vaccines? And yeah, uh, what do you think are some effective ways that maybe we can address this as medical professionals? Yeah, and I think it's always important to sort of distinguish between vaccine hesitancy and just like the anti-vax mindset, because people have legitimate concerns about vaccines. I know one of the major questions I get is like, oh, these are produced very quickly. How do I know they're safe? There's no long-term data. And now with the J&J vaccine having been on, put on pause because of the, um, like the very rare clotting disorder. But what I try to tell people is, you know, with anti-vaxxers, there's no winning. They're gonna take, you know, they're gonna take any information like, okay, the vaccine pause means that the vaccine's toxic. If they didn't pause it, they're gonna be like, oh, they're hiding this, they were hiding information from us. They're letting people get vaccinated and they know that the plots are happening. So there's no winning with them. But I try to tell people that this is just a, a sign that the safety monitoring system that's in place is working. And, you know, it, it's there and it's so sensitive that it detected, they detected six very rare blood clots out of 7 million doses of a vaccine. And I try to tell people, you know, now when the anti-vaxxers are saying, oh, but look, there's all these deaths and all these adverse events that occur in the vaccines. I'm like, if they stop the vaccine rollout for Johnson and Johnson or paused it rather for six rare blood clots, do you think 2000 deaths that were logged in VAERS would have just been unnoticed, right? right? If there were 2000 deaths, they would have stopped it because they stopped it for just six rare blood clots, one of, one of which was fatal. Mm-hmm. So I try to tell people this should bolster your your trust in the system, that the system is there and it's working. And I know in the short term, it is going to affect vaccine hesitancy, but it's just then our job as physicians and as healthcare providers to keep up with the information and, and assuring people that these vaccines are safe and effective. You know, and I keep telling people that nothing is without its risk, right? I tell people, you know, you're, anything that you do in life has a risk associated with it, but you have to weigh the risks and benefits. And the risks of these vaccines are far, far, far smaller than the benefits, because like you mentioned, getting COVID, the risk of getting COVID-19 is not minuscule. The risk of developing a complication from COVID, depending on your age or comorbidities, not minuscule, especially dealing with clots. Clots happen in hospitalized patients all the time. At the peak of the pandemic, we were just lovenoxing people up all the time because we were like, we couldn't, we couldn't scan them for PEs because we, you know, we didn't have the time and the effort and the, and the, the space for it because so many people were sick and we had so many like isolation protocol issues in the beginning. So we were empirically anticoagulating people because we knew blood clotting was a severe issue. They even, uh, Oxford is uh, university did a study. It's not peer reviewed yet, but looked at the incident rate of central venous sinus thromboses in COVID patients. And it's much higher than those who were vaccinated. They looked at, uh, they looked, they didn't look at the AstraZeneca vaccine. They looked at Pfizer, Moderna, but they, they just found that COVID-19 is associated with a much higher risk of CSVT compared to uh, the general population. So 
it's it's about risk versus benefits. So I try to tell people that all the time that there's there are risks with these vaccines, but compared to the risks of COVID, there there's no comparison. And I was watching your TikTok live just yesterday, and I feel like a lot of the questions that came up were surrounding the J and J vaccine and a lot of the things that you've just addressed. Mm-hmm. Many of our listeners are pre-med and medical students who hopefully will end up in your position in just a few years. What what advice do you have for some of these prospective physicians on how they can approach this misinformation and how they can approach addressing and, and providing factual information, not just their patients, but also to family and friends who might be having those conversations? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a, a super important question because, you know, you could very easily sort of take the fire hose approach where you just open up and just let them have it with all these facts. And that's too much, right? People, people are going to be inundated with that, that information and they're not going to, they're not going to cling on to it because they're, they're going to be confused. So what I usually do is sit down with them and first assess whether, whether they're asking a question in good faith, because that's just my, my cynical side for being on TikTok because I get a lot of bad faith questions. But if they are having a legitimate question, you know, I'll ask them, you know, where, where they are sort of assess where in the sort of spectrum of vaccine hesitancy are there, what question do they have in particular, as opposed to sort of just listing all the benefits of these vaccines, ask them like, what is it about these vaccines that are, that are giving you pause? What, what are you worried about in particular? And some people will say, oh, you know, it's, it was rushed, or I want to have a baby. And I heard that it was going to make me infertile. I heard that a lot of people died after getting the vaccine. So sort of then approach it and say, okay. And then, you know, having been doing this for a while, I sort of understand where each of these conspiracy theories come from. So I know, I know the specific meme that it's addressing. Um, so I said, oh yeah, well, this, this actually isn't based in reality. It actually came from a conspiracy theory you know, the infertility one being like, you know, the sensation one protein from placenta is uh, homologous to the spike protein and your antibodies for COVID will attack the sensation protein and you won't implant your placenta and you'll, you'll miscarry. Um, so I explained to them, you know, physiologically, scientifically, how that doesn't happen and how plenty of women in the clinical trials have had successful pregnancies. Plenty of women who have recovered from COVID and have those same antibodies recovered and had babies successfully. And it's just, again, and just explaining them in, and again, trying to use as simplified terms as possible, not to over-medicalize it, because again, people will sort of go right over their heads and they won't listen, but sort of be patient as well. And it may not, it may not be something you achieve in just one sitting. You may have to sort of approach it a couple of times because Rome wasn't built in a day. Vaccine hesitancy isn't going to just go away in a day for some people. Some people are going to say, okay, I hear you, but I still don't want it. And it's just a conversation. Then I always say, okay, that's fine, but I'm, I'm willing to sort of talk to you more if you want to like, you know, sit with this information. And, and maybe look into it a little more. And then if you have any more questions, feel free to ask. And then, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people who come back to me and say, hey, you know, I looked into this, but I heard this other thing. Um, yeah, so maybe it won't make me sterile, but I think, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll cause me to die. So then I sort of address that. And again, it's just having patience. Because with, again, I always tell people, if you're vaccine hesitant for legitimate reasons, I will take all the time in the world to educate you and to sort of get you to the point where you're, you're comfortable getting vaccinated. I try not to waste my time, energy, and breath on people who are anti-vaxxers who are just there to sow chaos and push misinformation. And I think that's a really good approach, not just to misinformation in COVID-19, but also just in clinical practice in general and trying to yeah. address the direct concerns of the patient. Great advice, not just for the listeners, but also for myself and Raza, who are right up on that pipeline of getting into medicine ourselves. Yeah. So with all this being said, and all the doom and gloom, I guess, that we've been painting a little bit on the COVID-19 pandemic, there we are in a position where really hope is exists and, and hope for a better and normal future really is just on the horizon. So to bring this episode to a little bit more of a positive note, what are some of your hopes for 2021 and 2022? 
And what are some of your aspirations um, in this upcoming year, personally and professionally, if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, of course. I I'm looking forward to a point where, you know, we can just like gather again. I that's a you know now now that I'm vaccinated, a lot of my friends are now vaccinated. We're starting to gather again and feel safe because again, I, I trust the data and the science with these with vaccines, and I, I still get tested regularly for work. So I feel very confident being able to sort of gather at least in smaller groups with my friends that I haven't maybe seen in in a few months or a year. And you just miss out on, you forget how much you miss that social interaction and how like Zoom fatigue is such a real, I say this like while we're on Zoom, it's such a real thing. And you just miss that like personal contact with people. So I'm very much looking forward to just being back with family and friends, being able to travel again. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've left the New York City area in over a year, being able to see my grandmother who's 94 in a nursing home, being able to sort of see my family again. And just in terms of work, you know, being able to sort of gather again, because even, you know, morning report and doing these lectures and everything and in, in for the med students, for the residents, it's sort of hybrid now, virtual in person. I, I miss just like the, the in-person interaction with, with residents, with med students. So that that's something I'm looking forward to. And just, you know, sort of getting back to a sense of normalcy as it was. I don't think we're ever going to sort of get back to this, like what we were pre-pandemic. I think the pandemic has really shaken things up and changed some things for the better. And I think we can incorporate those into our lives moving forward. But just sort of going back to, you know, in-person learning, going back to in-person morning report and yeah, just, just human contact again. And I think professionally being able to sort of teach in person and just get to sort of scrap zoom and just sort of meet in person, eat in person, do all that stuff. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, maybe, maybe not in the next few months, but maybe coming 2022, that'll start to come back to, to our normal, our normal life. And after the pandemic, so much of your content revolves around COVID-19. Will Dr. Eric B. TikTok turn to baking again, maybe? <laughs> I think, uh, I think, yeah, people have asked me that a couple of times. Like, you know, once, once the pandemic is over, like, how are you going, you know, what is content going to be? And uh, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about that. I still, I, I love medical education and there's definitely plenty of opportunities for medical education. And as I found, there's plenty of misinformation that is not associated with, with COVID in terms of like the, the supplement vitamin industry, people saying, oh, you know, just like some, someone said, don't take antibiotics, take oil of oregano if you have an infection. And I was like, oh God, that's horrible advice. They, no one should do that. Um, so I, I don't think there'll ever be a, a time where people will not try to play armchair doctor. And uh, so I'll, I'll have that niche. But yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see what the future will bring. And I, I, I am very much looking forward to the point where I'll never have to mention COVID again. As, as much, as much uh, notoriety has brought me over the past year, I would gladly sacrifice that to just get rid of COVID and not have to tell people why a mask works. That would be, that would be wonderful. That would be ideal. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that all the points that you brought up are so valid for things that we have to look forward to, especially like you said, that human connection, you know. I met up with a friend, again, he's also a medical student, so we're both vaccinated yesterday, and I hadn't seen him in like a year, and it was just like so different as opposed to us Zooming all the time, right? Or especially yeah. when you get into bigger crowds, you can't really, you know, break out and like talk amongst each other. It's kind of like really awkward. You have to like mm -hmm. pause after you speak to wait to see if anyone else has to speak. <laughs> Um, yeah, so definitely can't wait to, um, to have that human connection again. And there are an increasing number of pre-meds and medical students who are starting influencer accounts, whether that be on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Do you have any advice for these individuals and how you got started and how those who want to, again, be in your position could join this budding sector of medicine? 
yeah, I think, I think again, like I said, it's, it's a phenomenal resource um, to sort of get your voice out there to sort of find your niche, whether it be like, you know, if you're pre-med talking about how to get into med school, how to study for the MCAT, find your, find your niche that works for you. Cause I think if you sort of like have a, a, a shotgun approach and just talk about a bunch of different things, it's hard for people to follow because they may say, oh yeah, I like that one bit of content, but then you make another video like, oh, I don't really like that. So I'm not going to follow this person. So find like a niche, whether it be like medical education, um, advocacy, you know, obviously mine is a little bit of a mix, but namely just sort of like debunking misinformation has been my ballywick, so to speak. And just be careful with what you post too, because again, in this era of budding social media stars, like I said, what you say on social media is permanent. So, you know, and if, if you say something out there that's sort of controversial or misleading or sort of a detriment to the profession as a whole, it's, and it's out there, it could have negative impacts on you moving forward in your career. So it's, again, you just have to be careful. And I think as, as long as you're thoughtful about the material you're putting out, I think there's no issue, but if you start, you know, and as I've learned personally, like try not to get into fights with people on social media, because that just, again, even if you're right, you're going to look wrong because you're going to look like the, the educated person who's like devolving into the shouting match with someone who is clearly in it to get that, uh, that reaction out of you. And they're just like baiting you to say something wrong so they can be like, aha, I got you. And now I could use this against you. So try to, you know, try to ignore the trolls and something I have all, someone told me re- relatively recently is try not to read the comments too much because the comments can be quite toxic. And at first I thought, oh, you know, they're comments, whatever. It could be extremely toxic and extremely draining on mental health, especially in this era of the pandemic when, you know, everyone's mental health is, is sort of frayed to begin with. So, you know, try not to take things personally and, you know, try to utilize that, that negativity as an opportunity to teach and, uh, and get more people engaged rather than sort of fighting back and forth. Yeah, that's great advice. So do you think that there is like a best social media platform for medical students and residents to use or um, is it all kind of the same? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, me personally, I, I think TikTok is pretty good just because it, it is, you know, one minute videos. It presents its own challenges because being able to cram a lot of like dense, complex medical material distill it down to something that lay people can understand and fit into a minute is challenging. I know a lot of med ed people on Twitter. So Twitter is a really thing. I, till for life of me, have not figured out Twitter yet. I have a Twitter. Um, I usually just upload some of my TikToks to it, but I don't know what retweeting is. I, so again, I, I, I feel confused by Twitter. Um, so I try to stay away from it. Uh, but I think an Instagram as well as, as I, I use Instagram, but again, mainly uploading like TikToks to, to Instagram, but I think TikTok and Instagram for me are, are easy enough. They're, you know, they're very easy user-friendly, but I know a lot of people, at least in, even in my, my own, my own personal friend group who use Twitter as a means to sort of educate people um, and, and use it as like a med ed tool. Yeah. Awesome. So any parting words of advice for our listeners? You guys are in a wonderful profession. And I think it's, it's a difficult profession and more so now, I think people are realizing just how hard it is to be a doctor, to be a, a physician, but just reflecting even back on how hard and arduous this last year and a half has been in the pandemic, uh, I wouldn't change it for anything because you know as, as, as hard it was on me to be a, a frontline physician in COVID and you know, dealing with the, the harsh realities of this pandemic, having to deal with the misinformation, having to you know, be with people as they died alone, I'll never forget that. But also looking at it, that's a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous uh, and awesome thing to do, right? Is to, to, 
be there for that person to, you know, to be on the front lines of the pandemic, to actually have made a difference in people's lives. So, you know, people have asked me, you know, with all this like crazy stuff going on with COVID and, and with misinformation and people sort of just like mistreating you all the time online, calling you a hack, calling you a charlatan, you know, calling your credentials into question. Do you, do you regret going into medicine? And I always say no. Uh, I, I never, never for a, uh, in a, for a minute have regretted going into medicine and I could never, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it in a heartbeat because I honestly think this is the best profession to be in. I feel extraordinarily fulfilled with my work. And I think, you know, for you guys who are pre-med and in med school, um, there are going to be hard days that are going to be really long and it's going to seem so at some points that it's not worth it, that you probably should have gone into investment banking and been, been a bajillionaire like some of my friends are right now um, and have no debt. But at the end of the day, you know, what you're doing is, is an ex- extremely important thing. Your, your value and your worth in, is, is so much tied into your profession and it's, it's such an important thing. And I think the pandemic has shown us more than ever that uh, our jobs have so much meaning and we need all the competent, well-rounded, passionate physicians that we can. So you guys are, are, are forming the ranks and you guys are gonna come and help us uh, soon, sooner rather than later. It'll, you'll, it'll be here before you know it. So just, uh, just keep that in mind when you guys are um, you know, having those rough days that they, they do get better and your job has meaning and, and value and worth. I think one thing I heard before when I was getting into medicine was you're going to be 30 eventually. So you might as well be a doctor when you're 30, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And speaking from someone who's 34, you're, you're, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I got that out of the way. And it's, it's a great, it's a great thing at parties. When you say you're a doctor, people will randomly show you, I'm sure you, again, like even when I was a med student, people would randomly show me their rashes. And, but now I have no excuse because I'm a doctor because before I'd be like, I'm just a med student. I don't know. I haven't learned about rashes yet. But now when you're, when you're a full fledged, when you're a full fledged doctor, you have to sort of, you know, you have to you have to think on your feet. Amazing, thank you, Dr. Burnett, for giving us your time. Um, where yeah. can our listeners go to support you and your content? So, if you guys do have TikTok, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Eric B. So, Dr. Eric B. And uh, and then at, at Instagram, I'm uh, Eric two six eight seven. And those are those are my two major social media accounts. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for this informative conversation. And of course, thank you guys for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.